in the uh, late 1970s, I had the great privilege of spending some time with a woman named Dora Kuntz. Dora was in her 80s at that point. And at that time, she was the national president of the Theosophical Society. Dora was Austrian, and she had quite an unusual upbringing in Indonesia. She was taught meditation at a very young age. She told me that um, her parents didn't mind if she missed a meal uh, now and then if she was outside playing. But uh, she said that if she uh, missed her meditation period, that was not okay with her parents. Fortunately, Adora uh, didn't rebel against this, and she grew up <coughs> into quite a rare being <coughs> and was uh, still very much um, a dedicated practitioner when I met her. In being around Dora, one of the uh, experiences, one, one, or I had, I should say, the experience of being with someone who not only manifested uh, deep wisdom, but who was the embodiment of a tremendous abundance of bright, clear energy and joy. These particular qualities are the, are actually the two things that I remember most about her. Her tremendous, her seemingly tremendously tireless energy and her joyful heart. She would work with us through much of the a day and into the evening, instructing us and offering her knowledge and wisdom with this a very tireless generosity. And then in the evening, she would speak to us. And at times during this particular mode of teaching, something she was about to say or something that she had just said or uh, sometimes some internal experience that hadn't been or wasn't about to be uh, put into words would strike her as being very delightful. And she would laugh. And sometimes laugh for a a few moments, a number of moments. And even sometimes slapping her leg (laughs) in joyful expression while she was laughing. Dora's energy and delight were greatly inspiring in those days. Both of these exceptional qualities of hers have very obviously continued to stick with me over over many years now as an inspiration and as help in leading me on the way to liberation. And as we practice together, as all of you practice together, the particular qualities of heart and mind that were so perfectly in place within Siddhartha that night, Siddhartha Gotama that night under the bow tree, as we practice, 
these capacities of heart and capacities of mind continue to develop and deepen and mature within ourselves. It's inevitable, actually, that this happens as long as we keep on practicing. And I know from meeting uh, with each of you that each and all of you are practicing to attend carefully, mindfully, and wisely to the various objects that arise in the four domains of mindfulness in your experience. The first domain being the body and the body. What and how we experience the body in the body. The second domain, the feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral in relationship to what whatever arises in the body and mind. And the third domain of mindfulness, being mindfulness of the mind, citta nupasana in Pali, mindfulness of thought, mindfulness of states of mind, mindfulness of the objects of mind. And this fourth domain, the fourth domain, mindfulness of dhammas, which means attending to experience from the perspective of the nature of things, from the perspective of dhammas, from the perspective of the truth. For instance, using the universal characteristic of anicca, impermanence, as the developing and clarifying mirror through which we discern our experience. Mindfulness is also the first and overarching uh, uh, factors uh, of the seven factors of awakening, the seven factors of enlightenment. And as our mindfulness becomes strong and steady, we learn to discern the particular and universal features of an object more and more clearly. And we're more and more clearly able to distinguish between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind with ever more subtle distinctions, the ever more subtle distinctions that arise in the process of our practice. With this ongoing development within our practice, investigation of states, which is the second factor of the seven factors of awakening is developing and deepening. Consequently, our interest, energy, and effort is inspired and fired up in a more and more ongoing way. In spending some time in considering uh, what to talk about, it came up that an appropriate and hopefully helpful and meaningful topic uh, for this evening would be to take uh, a look at effort, effort, energy, and joy. Two of the factors of enlightenment. So beginning with effort, energy. So effort, energy, virya in Pali. This is the third factor of awakening. It's also one of the five controlling 
faculties, or as these faculties mature, the called the five spiritual powers, which are faith, energy effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. Virya is also one of the ten paramis, the ten perfections, the ten purified qualities of heart and mind that are developing all along the way of our practice. So what is effort, energy? And particularly, what is it in relationship to the teachings of the Buddha? And even more specifically, what is it and how does it manifest in relationship to our practice? Effort and energy are very often inspired and initiated by some degree of spiritual urgency, some vega in Pali. I once heard Virya referred to as the chief root hero. So why might have this been said, the chief root hero? Virya is a state of zeal or vigor and enthusiasm. It manifests as exertion, perseverance, diligence, and fearlessness, or at least a degree of fearlessness in facing difficult aspects of our practice, facing difficult aspects of our human experience, and at times even facing the dangers that are inherent in our human existence. This diligent and enthusiastic effort, energy, in and with our practice, helps to bring together and support and call into play other underlying and co-emerging wholesome states and actions of mind and body, such as investigation of states, interest, courage, concentration, patience, strength, calmness, and joy of mind, joy of heart, joy of body in the body, and of course a deepening clarity of mindfulness in relationship to whatever shows up in the body-mind continuum. Energy, or virya, is so intimately connected to the effort involved in practicing. Basically, it's the mental effort, the energy that's present in every single moment of mental activity. The mental effort, the energy that's present in every single moment of mindful awareness and investigation. And as I'm sure many of you have tasted at times, there's a kind of courageous and balanced effort that we're called upon over and over again to make in our practice. The about-to-be Buddha's tremendous determination and energy and flow of his effortless effort that night under the bow tree meant that there was just enough effort being made 
just enough energy being expended, not too much and not too little. And although each of us knows that energy and effort are essentially necessary for our practice, during our times of intensive retreat experience, in a very intimate way, it's shown to us directly and clearly that a great dedication and enthusiasm and balanced exertion and wholehearted endeavor is needed to really, truly engage in this process of awakening. If anyone ever told us that it would be easy, (laughs) that one just kind of floats through it, and reaches the other shore without expending much energy, without expending much effort, we can be sure, positive, that they were not speaking from experience. Or for some unknown reason, they were lying to us. So an important and crucial aspect of our practice is learning how to arouse the appropriate energy and effort. Learning how to make wholehearted effort in the right way. Too much effort leads to too much energy, which can manifest as restlessness. Over-efforting can sometimes result in actually contracting around experience and tightening up. A a tenseness in the body and a tenseness in the mind. Rather than an open flow and an increase of energy feeding the blossoming of our practice. Too little effort leads to too little energy. Which can manifest as sleepiness, lethargy, and maybe mind states of discouragement, doubt rather than a zestful interest and inspiration. So we could say that it's a balancing act. It's kind of like tuning a guitar. If we turn the peg too much and over-tighten the string, what happens? It breaks. If the string's too loose, there's very little sound. And in both both cases, the instrument is out of tune. When the instrument, and in this case our body-mind, is tuned just right, we can then play the beautiful music of our practice. The enlightenment factor of energy is the factor that strengthens other factors that are arising or that are, we could say, emerging at the same time as a vigorous practice energy is present. The Buddha said energy that is wisely initiated and wisely used should be regarded as the root of all insight, the root of all attainment. So clearly it's a factor of awakening, a factor of enlightenment. Classically, wholesome energy is described as manifesting in meditators as non-sinking, non-collapsing, 
energy and or energy and effortless effort it's a circular happening we could say so we put forth energy we make an effort in every posture of our practice sitting standing lying down moving we put forth energy we make an effort in every moment that we mindfully connect and investigate in every moment that we explore our immediate experience and at least some of the time it's just the right amount just the right tuning it's really important to bring a mindful attention to the quality of effort that is happening to pay attention and to tune up every now and then are we trying too hard over-efforting tightening and tensing with the effort that we're putting into our practice or are we too laid back almost to the point of being lethargic maybe misunderstanding what a relaxed energy attitude and effort means in relationship with practice thus experiencing a sinking body and a sinking mind and heart all too often in our practice we need to regularly tune up the quality and the attitudinal approach of the effort that we practice with so just like a musician even the most accomplished musician even a musician with perfect pitch has to tune their instrument regularly we need to tune up regularly and just like a guitar player for instance as i've already mentioned if the strings are too tight they break if the strings are too loose they have no tone and the music can't be played as our energetic and effort ear so to say is honed we're able to more and more easily notice when there's even a subtle imbalance of effort attitudinally and or energetic energetically happening in our practice and so again we need to regularly tune up in order to play this beautiful music of our practice and very important this goes on all through the years of our practice all through the years maybe until we're a buddha and it gets subtler and subtler and subtler whenever there's just the right amount of energy put forth this energy this effort creates more of itself and we enter into the circle of sustaining energy and what we might experience as effortless effort in our practice so how to balance the slack mind how does one exert the mind on the occasion when it needs to be exerted 
when the mind is slack with a kind of laxness and carelessness and sloppiness and maybe some sloth and a sense of apathy when there's a lack of energy basically is what I'm saying instead of sinking into or developing tranquility or concentration or equanimity these are also factors of enlightenment but instead of sinking into or developing these particular factors of tranquility, concentration and equanimity one should begin by developing investigation of states which quite naturally brings up energy and very possibly even brings up some degree of joy there's some wonderful metaphors that I'd like to uh, share with you that the Buddha uh, used to teach his students about balancing the mind in practice balancing the energy of our practice and this is from the Buddha uh, to his students suppose a man or woman wanted to make a small fire burn bigger and she or he put wet grass on it, put wet cow dung on it, put wet sticks on it, sprinkled it with water and scattered dust on it. Would that man or woman be able to make the small fire burn bigger? And the monks and nuns responded to the Buddha, No, venerable sir. Then the Buddha goes on, So too, yogis, when the mind is slack, that is not the time to develop the tranquility concentration or the equanimity enlightenment factors why because a slack mind cannot be roused in those states it's time to develop the investigation of states energy to develop energy and and the happiness factors a slack mind can well be roused by those states and the buddha continues Suppose a man or woman wanted to make a small fire burn bigger and put dry grasses, dry cow dung, dry sticks on it, and then blew on it, and didn't scatter dust on it. What would that man or woman, would that man or woman be able to make the small fire burn bigger? And the monks and nuns responded, yes, venerable sir. So the energizing factors of our practice are mindfulness, investigation of states, energy, joy, and happiness. The tranquilizing factors in our practice are concentration, tranquility, and equanimity. As we learn and understand this more and more clearly through our direct experience with our practice, we're able to tune up as is needed we're able to bring a balanced effort and a balanced energy into our practice more and more clearly and more easily the Buddha with his great clarity and compassion spoke about what he termed as the nutriment for each of the enlightenment factors So what is the sustenance? What is the active nourishment that we can feed the heart and mind for the arising, the development, the fulfillment, and the perfection of this enlightenment factor of energy, effort? 
we're strongly encouraged to give a careful and a wise attention in reflection to the fearfulness of states of such states as great anger hatred desire fear jealousy dukkha or constant dissatisfaction these states where no happiness exists this reflection can inspire a sense of urgency bringing forth a deeper and stronger energy for practice it can be quite helpful to reflect on the journey of awakening to be traveled the journey taken by all the buddhas and all all the great disciples this being the very same journey that we're taking and recognize that in fact it can't be taken by a lazy idle person we're encouraged to reflect on the buddha's great great energy to reflect on the remarkable helpfulness of his teachings and the noble and beautiful heritage of the dhamma that we're connected to and to reflect on the understanding that the best way to honor the all these things is through our diligent practice and it's also helpful to reflect on all that has been so generously given us throughout our life and in the more immediate present what has been offered to us so that we can sustain our practice and the best way to acknowledge and give thanks and to be a credit for this is to produce great fruit for all the givers we're encouraged to reflect on and to see the benefit of cultivating concentration and for some people jhana which is in part dependent on the cultivation of energy the cultivation and the development of energy as well as itself being help, helpful to nurture energy we learn that stiffness dullness and sleepiness of mind and of body can be removed by bringing a very careful and wise attention maybe to the perception of light maybe changing postures if if necessary to spending time outdoors that can be very helpful or as sile mentioned last night to vigorously pull on our earlobes mm-hmm. and i i had also not only pull on them but rub them very vigorously if you try that for just a second right now like pulling and rubbing like this do it do it just for a moment or two keep doing it bigger i mean put your energy into it and stop you feel feel it <laughs> yes okay <laughs> helpful can be helpful <laughs> the buddha tells us that a very important and he calls it the chief external condition 
for the arising un, uh, of this factor of energy is to associate with energetic people and to not spend a lot of time with lazy, idle people. It's also very helpful uh, to review what the most important endeavors are in relationship to our practice. And it's uh, indicated that cultivating the seven factors of enlightenment uh, is a primary endeavor if we want to awaken. And last but not least, we're told that we should make a resolve. Make a resolve to incline the mind, incline the heart towards the establishment of this factor of energy, effort, virya. There's no meditation practice. There's no fruit of practice without making an effort, without using energy. During a retreat at the Forest Refuge, I think it was about 17 or so years ago now, I was again inspired by another venerable teacher. And this time it was a man in his early 80s, Venerable Saidao Upandita. Abundant Dharma energy is not necessarily age-related. Saidao gave a Dharma talk every single night for the, a whole month. He offered very clear and incisive interviews every morning for six days in a row each week and occasionally did extra pra- practice interviews in the afternoon. He met with various guests and friends on some afternoons. And also he took a walk uh, on the days where the weather permitted his dharma energy was very powerfully projected out to all of the yogis and was one of the primary factors for me for the tremendous practice energy that ensued in me during that particular intensive practice period. I was at times quite surprised and amazed uh, and deeply grateful for how much practice energy was available for me at the age of 62. It was considerably and consistently more than in my younger years. So there's hope. (laughs) There's hope in our old age if we keep practicing. The consistent and tremendous energy that Sayadaw put out through that month-long retreat seemed effortless. I was inspired and uh, thought of a teaching that I'd read and that I have treasured, actually, and been moved by over the years from the Chinese Taoist philosopher and teacher Chang Tzu. I may have offered this the first evening. I don't remember, but it's a good one. So if I did, you could hear it again. The mind of a perfect woman or man is like a mirror. It grasps nothing. It expects nothing. It reflects, but does not hold. Therefore, the perfect man, or the perfect woman, acts without effort. Effortless effort. Acts with effortless effort, I add. So, 
maybe a different uh, definition of perfection than, uh, than you've been conditioned to aspire to. This is our practice, or actually more accurately, the possibility of our practice. The possibility of effortless effort. The possibility of a tremendous abundance of energy as was manifesting through Siddhartha Gautama during that now famous night under the bow tree. And so this third factor of enlightenment, effort, energy, virya, the Buddha's instruction is that it's present, that if it's present, one is to know this enlightenment factor of effort, of energy, is present in me. If it's absent, One is to know the factor of effort, of energy, is absent in me. And our instruction is to know how this factor of energy, how this factor of effort comes to arise and how the development of it comes about. When virya is present in our practice, the mind and heart are in what is classically called a state of non-collapse. There's a brightness of presence and mindful awareness, which can be described experientially as a sense of aliveness. This aliveness is so intimately connected to the effort and energy involved involved with and needed in practicing. Dhamma teacher and colleague Gina Sharp says this about wise effort. By this effort, we do not seek to improve ourselves. Rather, we open our minds to understanding the qualities of heart and mind that keep us bound and suffering and those that set us free. This is a radical shift that requires profound kindness and compassion. So we could say that we pay attention to understand, not to judge ourselves, and not to judge our practice. If we hold the view that Dhamma practice is about improving ourselves, we will then be making effort by judging whether or not we're making progress in this self-improvement. Wise effort in our practice is towards learning how suffering and how happiness happen. In order to make this shift, many of us need to work or practice towards the ability to accept ourselves just as we are accept the body, mind, and heart just as it is in any given moment. This is not an attitude of dropping into complacency. Not at all. Working with ourselves in this way is not actually about improving the self, but rather about preparing the self to actually be able to make the shift away from 
getting better to getting more free. And actually, just in learning to accept the self, we're starting to become free of the so-called self. The shift is a crucial aspect of our practice. So some questions you might ask yourself now and then that I think could be very helpful are this. Am I trying to get better in this moment? Or am I practicing to understand and get free? What are the qualities of mind, of heart, that keep me bound and suffering? What qualities of mind and heart set me free? As we continue to apply energy to our practice, this work of mental purification, a spiritual joy grows and blossoms. And the fourth factor of enlightenment, joy, delight, happiness, is born. Joy, or PT in Pali, <clears throat> is called an occasional. So what does that mean, it's called an occasional? It's called an occasional because only if it manifests with no identification and no attachment is it a wholesome and beautiful quality. And only if it manifests with no identification and no attachment is it a factor of awakening, a factor of enlightenment. The mental characteristics of PT can be quite endearing and can be explained as delight or a positive or pleasurable interest in whatever the object is of our mindful attention. Its function is to refresh the mind and body. And it has the potential to weaken the hindrance of ill will. When there's self-identification and attachment in relationship to the manifestation of joy, the manifestation of piti in our vipassana practice, it's not a factor of enlightenment as I've already mentioned, but rather it becomes what can be called a corruption of insight. And it stops up. It hinders the process of our practice if it's not quickly recognized and noted. The Buddha compared the hindrances to corruptions of gold, to trees in the forest that are filled with parasites, to impurities in water, which obscures the reflection of our face. It's as though they make us blind. The factors of enlightenment, on the other hand, are makers of vision, makers of wisdom, and great, great aids 
along the path of awakening. As each subsequent factor of awakening arises, those that have already arisen, they don't disappear. They remain alongside, we could say, as an accessory, with each of the factors developing and maturing in conjunction with each other, and eventually and inevitably leading to awakening, leading to freedom. Joy, delight, piti is called the happiness factor. It's not a feeling or a vedana as in pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. In its maturity, it's a mental factor, a mental formation, a mental response. One aspect of joy is zest and enthusiasm. The mental state of joyful interest and delight. Joy or rapture, as it's uh, sometimes translated as, PT is translated as rapture at times, is sometimes uh, call, is, is, is very bright, it's very buoyant. There may be the experience, uh, as it's developing, of a certain kind of physical and mental transformation and balance when this enlightenment factor is growing and blossoming and present in us. We may, in these moments, feel quite refreshed, unbound, healed even. And sometimes I think of it uh, and experience it as a kind of lightness of being. Experientially, this enlightenment factor can circulate through our body and mind like a river, like waves. There might be sensations and mental states of softness and great gentleness and smoothness being known. As PT joy, as it's developing, we may experience lightness or tingles or maybe a comfortable coolness or a feeling of maybe even floating or flying. Or we may just simply feel very, very comfortable in the body and mind and have no desire at all to get up from our cushion. Instead, there's great interest supported by mindfulness, investigation, and energy to just continue to sit without moving. So, there can be a sense of being imbued with a refreshing lightness of being. Our meditation practice is refreshed with a renewed and renewing energy and inspiration. With this factor in place, we feel energetically lightened, agile. We feel well in the midst of whatever phenomena is presenting itself. And it might be difficult phenomena, but we're okay. We feel well in that way. When this factor of joy is established, we really, truly begin to feel a sense of well-being in the midst of any given experience.
quite a number of years ago now, I attended a, a week-long retreat in northern uh, Colorado with a Tibetan Buddhist teacher. For the last evening's Dhamma talk, Dharma talk in the Tibetan retreat, uh, but a Dhamma talk in our retreat, <laughs> we, we had a special guest who was one of the teachers of the Rinpoche who was leading the retreat. Our guest was Adi Rinpoche, a man in his early 80s. And this was his very first trip to the U.S. Before he arrived at the retreat center, we were given some background information about Adi Rinpoche, in that he was a very fine artist, and that he had been in a Chinese prison for 20 years. 15 years of which he and two other lamas who were also imprisoned were practicing in retreat. This 15-year prison retreat came about because of the kindness of one of the Chinese doctors at the prison who had created the conditions to make this possible for these three men. We were told that Adi Rinpoche was one of the few remaining antique lamas left. And so our honored guest came into the meditation hall with his somewhat stiff and bent body. And he was given help climbing up to his seat. And then he proceeded to give a very long, clear, and very traditional step-by-step Dhamma talk or Dharma talk uh, from the Tibetan perspective. It was not a particularly scintillating talk nor was there even a thread of humor in it. But in its own way, it was, it was interesting enough. There was, though, a particularly scintillating aspect of that evening, and it was Adi Rinpoche himself. As he spoke, there was an energy and a lightness and a suppleness and an incredible delight in his demeanor that came through. At times it seemed as though he was almost bouncing in his seat. It was maybe the closest thing to levitation that I'd ever seen. (laughs) Just to check myself and the possibility of my projection onto Adi Rinpoche, after the talk I asked uh, two friends who were also attending this retreat, if they also noticed these same qualities in Adi Rinpoche. And they confirmed that, yes, they definitely had noticed these similar qualities, same qualities. After the retreat finished, there was a a fundraising auction where calligraphy and painting that was done by Adi Rinpoche was auctioned off. The woman who had requested him to do a few paintings and uh, some calligraphy for the auction told us that she had stayed with him as he worked, as he did his calligraphy and painting. And she said that the whole time that he was painting, he was visibly filled with a gently bubbling energy, laughing very lightly the whole time he was working. So again, another great inspiration for me and for others. This man bore the fruit of managing to do deep 
practice for the majority of the 20 years that he'd spent in prison, which we can be certain was not a comfortable or easy or supportive situation to practice in. as it is for each of the factors of, of awakening. From the Buddha and in the commentaries to the suttas, we're offered specific nutriment for the arising, development, fulfillment, and the perfection of the enlightenment factor of joy. We're told to give a careful and wise attention to the following reflecting on the qualities of the Buddha and on the great benefits of the Dhamma, and to carefully and wisely reflect on the various facets and the precious importance of the Sangha. Recognizing that joy can arise with a reflection on the benefits and the great beauty of sila, I had a very visceral experience of this during a spring retreat uh, quite a few years ago with Saida Upandita. Every time I would go into the house where Saida was living and where he did uh, practice meetings, I would be struck by the purity and the beauty of the energy of Sila that pervaded that space. And every time this happened, my heart would fill up and gently leap with joy. The Buddha tells us to reflect on the benefits of generosity in all of its facets, meaning within the giving and the receiving of generosity. This can nurture joy, delight, happiness. We're told to reflect on peace and strongly encouraged to spend time cultivating relationships with gentle and refined people and avoid spending a lot of time with rude and rough people. It's very helpful and wholesome to listen to and to review inspiring and encouraging Dhamma discourses with a very careful and wise attention. This is very fine nutriment for the arising, development, fulfillment, and perfection of this enlightenment factor of joy. And we're encouraged to make a resolve to incline the mind, to incline the heart towards the establishment of the enlightenment factor of joy. As a factor of awakening, we know when joy is present in us. And when it's absent, we know that too. We know how it comes to arise. 
and we know how the development of it comes about. In the overall light of practice, the seven factors of enlightenment are developed and established as the antithesis to all forms of ill will, sensual lust, sloth and torpor, restlessness, regret, shame, and doubt. These states of mind and body being the primary obstacles to progress in developing mindfulness, concentration, and insight. It's when we buy, it's when we blindly take up and identify with the so-called hindrances that they become hindrances. They weaken, they can erase understanding and block or close the heart, close the mind. We can lose the Dhamma as Sile mentioned last evening. Joy renders, or joy without identification, joy without attachment, without clinging, renders the mind, renders the heart bright, light, pliable, and open. It's rooted in our practice along the way of this journey towards awakening. And we have countless opportunities along the way to, through our practice, directly through our practice, countless opportunities to take delight in relationship, for instance, to our own practice. The joy of a loving, compassionate heart. The joy of metta. The joy of karuna. The joy of living with a growing and deepening ethical relationship to others, to life in general, and in relationship to our own body, mind, and heart. The joy of living harmlessly in every direction. The joy of non-guilt, of non-worry. The joy of non-deceit. The joy of a collected, focused mind the joy of calm and tranquility, the joy of non-distraction, non-dispersion, delight, joy, and non-proliferation of thought, and the joy of seeing things clearly, truly, just as they are, which brings the great joy of understanding, the joy of wisdom, the joy of non-delusion, non-confusion, the joy of peace. In one of the short suttas from the Samyutta Nikaya, it said that once when the Buddha was gravely ill, he asked the venerable Mahakunda to recite the seven factors of enlightenment to him. And the sutta goes on to say that in such a way, 
was the Buddha cured of his illness. So, listing the seven factors of enlightenment. Mindfulness, investigation, energy effort, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And as I'm sure you may have noticed, at least on some of the Buddha statues, the Buddha Rupas, this one included, the small and subtle smile on the face of the Buddha can be a pointer, a reminder, and an inspiration for us of the underlying joy the inherent joy in the midst of and along with the compassion and wisdom of the awakened mind, the awakened heart. So let's sit quietly for just a moment or two. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. May all of the wholesome energies and the fruits that manifest through our practice serve with immeasurable impartiality, without bias, without prejudice, towards the welfare the happiness and the awakening of all beings everywhere, which, of course, includes ourselves.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.